Think about a couple of things this morning. How do you feel about people when they let you down? Feel pretty good about them? Or when they do things that disappoint you? How about when you tell them not to do something, they do it anyway? Does that cause you any problems? How you think about them, how you deal with them, how you react to them? Well, here's a question. How does God handle it when we do things to let him down? When we sin openly against him and his word, how does God think and feel and act toward us? Like we act toward others? And this morning you might want to think first, what have you been doing that doesn't please God? I'm waiting on the Holy Spirit to work here for a second. (laughs) See if you can find the book of Hosea. It's in the Old Testament, it's a minor prophet. Find Ezekiel, find Daniel. And right after that comes Hosea. I've reminded you before, most Christians ignore the minor prophets of the Old Testament at the end of the Old Testament because they think, well, their messages apply only to Israel. And mainly they do, there's no doubt about that, that most of what's written in the minor prophets, the last books of the Old Testament, mostly are directed at Israel. So why should we read them? Why should we pay attention to them? And I've given you these reasons before. The first is obvious. They're in Scripture. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and should be studied. And it does help us see what God's plan for Israel is. There's no doubt about that. But more important for us to study them is we tend to see how serious God is about sin. And to understand that if you read them, you're fine. We're guilty of many of the same sins that he judges Israel for. But on top of that, you really want to read them to see, well, all right, well, when people sin, how does God handle that? How does God react to that? Is there grace? Is there hope? Is there mercy? Is there faithfulness? Or does he react to people like we do? I assume you found Hosea. A couple of uh, background particulars here. The author is Hosea. How's that? That was easy. He's the last prophet to the northern kingdom of Israel, the northern ten tribes, before God's judgment of that northern kingdom falling to Assyria. He gets to give the last messages to Israel. If you want the historical background, you go back to 2 Kings 14. It's during the reign of Jeroboam II, who is in the line of Jehu. You'll hear that name this morning. And if you paid attention to it, you'll notice this is 14 chapters. We're going to be here a while. We could. But we're going to hit the highlights, especially the first three chapters, give us kind of the background. And then we'll see some other pieces that you can go back later and study it for yourself. But the first three chapters give us some pictures that God wants us to have. And the first is in chapter 1. And it starts with a command, Hosea, in verses 1 and 2. And we're working through this just a few verses at a time. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go and take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. Well, there's a good way to start a Sunday morning. Pretty strong language, isn't it? 
So we understand God's starting with something serious, and he gives Hosea a command to take a wife who would be a prostitute. Now, in this case, she probably became a prostitute after he married her, because we know according to Deuteronomy 23, it was against the law, God's law, the Mosaic law, to be a prostitute. None of the daughters of Israel should be a cult prostitute. None of the sons of Israel should be a cult prostitute. And so you could not, under the law, marry somebody who was a prostitute under the law. And so she will become a prostitute after he marries her. And the first thing you're thinking is, why would God give this command? Well, I remind you, if you study the Old Testament, you know the Old Testament prophets... Since they didn't have TV, got to be visual displays of some things God wanted them to see. And this is going to be a visual display of something. Look back to verse 2. What's the reason he's telling Hosea to do this? Go and take yourself a wife of whoredom, have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. This will be an illustration of what Israel was doing in forsaking the Lord. Now, what's interesting is you're going to say, well, wow, what sins were they doing that God would use this kind of terminology for? Let's walk through some. Go to chapter 4, verse 1. We're walking through some verses throughout the book. Verse 1, hear the word of the Lord, O children of Israel, for the Lord has a controversy with the inhabitants of the land. There is no faithfulness or steadfast love and no knowledge of God in the land. So first, what weren't they doing? They weren't being faithful to what God wanted them to do. They weren't showing love, and they weren't demonstrating their knowledge of God. Verse 2, they're swearing, lying, murder, stealing, and committing adultery. They break all bounds, and bloodshed follows bloodshed. Pretty much similar to what we've seen today, don't we, with sins? They're just living as people who are not people of God. Chapter 4, verse 10. They shall eat but not be satisfied. They shall play the whore but not multiply because they have forsaken the Lord to cherish whoredom, wine, and new wine which take away understanding. They were forsaking the Lord to cherish what all the nations around them cherished, what they thought was important. Go over to chapter 7. What were they doing when they were supposedly even being spiritual? Chapter 7, verse 14. They do not cry to me from the heart. They may be crying out, but it's not coming from their heart. Verse 16. They return, but not upward. Even when they come back to the Lord, they do it mentally, but not spiritually. They think the right things, but it's really not directed toward God. Chapter 8, verse 14. For Israel has forgotten his maker. They evidently didn't think a whole lot about God most of the time. Chapter 9, verse 17. My God will reject them because they have not listened to him. 10, verse 3. For now they will say, we have no king, for we do not fear the Lord. And a king, what could he do for us? They utter mere words. With empty oaths, they make covenants. They don't fear the Lord. And when they even say spiritual things, they're just saying words. Pay attention to what you sang this morning. 
Last thing you asked was for the Lord to speak to you. Be careful. 10 verse 13. You have plowed iniquity, you have reaped injustice, you have eaten the fruit of lies because you have trusted in your own way and in the multitude of your warriors. They figured they knew a better way to do things than God did. And chapter 13, verse 2 kind of sums it up. And now they sin more and more, or at least they're not sinning any less. They're still sinning the same sins they have been sinning. Now look at that list and say, is that a list you would say, God would say, would be spiritual adultery? Why? Because it's a list that's pretty close to some of the stuff we're doing, isn't it? And God calls it whoredom. A pretty tough word. Go back to chapter 1. You're Hosea and you're asked to do this. To go take yourself a wife of whoredom, have children of whoredom. And so what does Hosea do? Verse 3, so he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diplaim. I know, we love that name Gomer, don't we? There's a great name for a woman. But understand, Hosea's told, you're going to marry this woman and she is going to become a prostitute. And Hosea does it anyway. Question, when God saves us, does he know what we're like? Does he know what we're going to do? Does he know how we're going to sin against him? Does he take us anyway? That's your starting picture Hosea is showing. Now, what's interesting, this picture is not done because now the children are going to be added in here. He's even going to use his children for a picture. Verse 3, so he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diplaim. She conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel. For in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. So his first son he's to call Jezreel, which means both God sows and God scatters, like God scatters seed. And he says, you're going to name your son as a sign to the king Jeroboam, the house of Jehu, that their dynasty will now end. I'm going to break their military might. I'm going to break everything about them, and your son's name will show that. Verse 6, she conceived again and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, call her name, no mercy, lo Ruhama." For I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. So he names his daughter, no mercy, not loved, to demonstrate to Israel, by the way, guys, you now have run out of mercy. I've been warning you for hundreds of years. And the mercy is now done. Interesting. Deuteronomy 29, here's where it started. Beware lest there be among you a man or woman or clan or tribe whose heart is turning away from the Lord our God to go and serve the gods of those nations. Beware lest there be among you a root bearing poisonous and bitter fruit, one who, when he hears the words of this sworn covenant, blesses himself in his heart, saying, I shall be safe though I walk in the stubbornness of my heart, though I do whatever I want to do. This will lead to the sweeping away of moist and dry alike. 
the Lord will not be willing to forgive him, but rather the anger of the Lord and his jealousy will smoke against that man, and the curses written in this book will settle upon him, and the Lord will blot out his name from under heaven. Wow. Or how about in 2 Chronicles 36, the Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place, but they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words, scoffing at his prophets, until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was, look at those next two words, no remedy. Well, it's a good thing we don't have to worry about that, do we? Really? Romans 2, do you suppose, O oh man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance, but because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself in the day of God's wrath when God's righteous judgment will be revealed? Don't think you can take advantage of God's mercy forever. Israel couldn't, neither can we. Now, interesting, look at verse 7. He does tell the southern kingdom of Judah, I will have mercy on the house of Judah. I'll save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow or by sword or by war or by horses or by horsemen. How would God have mercy on the southern kingdom? He would let Babylon come in and take them out for 70 years. Your idea of mercy? It's God's idea of mercy. There's a third child in verse 8. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, call his name, not my people, Lo-Ami. For you are not my people, and I am not your God. You're going, wow, God took them away, and they're no longer his people? That's really not what he's saying. This was a sign reminding this. You're going to get what you asked for. You don't want me as your father? You don't want me as your God? Then I'll treat you just like what you want. I'll give you what you're asking for. Remember Jesus saying this, So everyone who acknowledged me before men, I will also acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. You'll want to keep putting God off and say, Hey, I can do my own thing. God will finally say, I'll give you what you want. Now here's what's even more interesting about these kids. It's probably the last two children were not even Hosea's kids. Look at verse 3. He took Gomer, the daughter of Deplam. She conceived and bore him a son. Verse 6. She conceived again and bore a daughter. See something missing? Verse 8. When she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And chapter 2 reminds us what happened. Upon her children, verse 4, also I have no mercy because they are children of whoredom. The last two children that Hosea is given are not even his. How would you feel if you're Hosea? But you realize by naming them, Hosea claimed them as his own? Does God claim us anyway? Even when we sin? That's the picture. 
that God's giving through Hosea. And we see it in the next few verses. Hosea reminds us that God, no matter what he's doing here, is still committed to Israel. Look at verse 10. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Say to your brothers, you are my people, and to your sisters, you have received mercy. Even in their sin, was God still committed to Israel? Yes, they would be like the sand of the sea. They would be gathered, both Judah and Israel, together under one head that would go up from the land in a great day and be his people. God's commitment to his people never changes, no matter what they do. You understand that? But because of his commitment, chapter 2 then shows us God's actions toward sin. Because he's committed to his people, what will God do when we sin? There's going to be consequences. Look in chapter 2, verse 6. Therefore, I will hedge up her way with thorns, and I will build a wall against her so she cannot find her paths. She shall pursue her lovers, but not overtake them. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then she shall say, I will go and turn to my first husband, for it was better for me then than now. What does God do when his people sins? He hedges their way to keep them from doing something worse, if possible. You understand that? And here he says he hedges up her way with thorns. Look over in chapter 2, verse 11. God will do whatever it takes, whatever is necessary to bring his people back. Verse 11, I'll put an end to all her mirth, her feast, her new moons, her Sabbaths, and all her appointed feasts. I'll lay waste her vines, her fig trees, of which she said, these are my wages which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest. And the beasts of the field shall devour them, and I will punish her for the feast days of the Baals. When she burned offerings to them and adorned herself with her ring and jewelry and went after her lovers and forgot me, declared the Lord. God's actions towards sin with his people are always to show his commitment to them, and he'll do whatever is necessary to keep them from going further. Keep your finger here in Hosea. Go back to Hebrews chapter 12. Almost the end of the New Testament. Does God do this same thing with us? When we're doing things that displease him, that we shouldn't be doing, what does God do with us? Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. Have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons and daughters? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It's for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. If you're sinning against God, if you're not doing what pleases God, and you're not experiencing any discipline, you better check your spiritual birth certificate. Because if God's not doing anything, you're probably not his child. 
because God will do whatever it takes to keep you from doing worse. And what will he try to do that for besides this? Verse 10, for they discipline us for a short time as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. God has purposes in his discipline. Look back in Hosea chapter 6. What's some of the discipline that he'll bring? Some of the consequences here that he brought on Israel to hedge their way with thorns. Chapter 6 verse 5. Therefore I have hewn them by the prophets... I have slain them by the words of my mouth, and my judgment goes forth as the light. The first thing God does is he keeps bringing his word to us. Have you ever figured out sometimes when you're involved in sin you shouldn't be, it seems like whoever's speaking the word of God is speaking right to you? Did they have a little camera in your room last night? Do you wonder that sometimes? You understand that's God First, trying to bring the easiest consequence he can to bring Scripture to your mind to say, you aren't doing what you're supposed to be doing. He uses his word to try to turn us around. Chapter 7, verse 12. As they go, I will spread over them my net. I will bring them down like birds of the heavens. I will discipline them according to the report of the congregation. I'll bring them down. He'll do things that humble us. We think we've got it all covered. And all of a sudden, something happens that makes us look awfully bad. What's God trying to do? Get our attention. Disciplining us so we don't keep going the way we shouldn't be going. Look at chapter 8, verse 7. For they sow the wind, and they reap the whirlwind. The first phrase, they sow the wind. Do you realize you have free will to make whatever sinful choice you want to make? You got that? And to keep doing it as long as you want. You can sow the wind every day. And you control how much you want to do. But then it says you reap the whirlwind. What you can't do is control the consequences. You can't control what comes because of that. That is outside of your control. That's in God's control. And he uses the whirlwind to try to turn us around. Chapter 11, verse 5. You don't like God being over you? Verse 5, they shall not return to the land of Egypt, but Assyria shall be their king because they have refused to return to me. Verse 7, my people are bent on turning away from me, and though they call out to the Most High, he shall not raise them up at all. What's God saying? You don't like my headship? You don't want to submit to me? Fine, I'll put you under somebody else and see if you like that better. You will now serve sin. You want sin as your leader? Go ahead. You take what comes with it. And until you're ready to turn around, I'm not going to listen to you for a while. So you choose who you want as your boss. God or somebody else that God will put in his place. And it's usually worse than God. 
Chapter 12, verse 2. The Lord has an indictment against Judah, will punish Jacob according to his deeds, his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. What are the consequences for sin? God says there's going to be payment coming back. Hate to tell you something, though, it may not come now. It may not come until later. It may not come until your children and grandkids. We're told that in the Old Testament. It sometimes was carried down to the third and fourth generation because we as parents didn't take care of our sin, didn't stop our sin. Our kids and our grandkids pick it up and they suffer the consequences of their own sin by watching us. That's why all the instructions to parents and grandparents in the Old Testament especially are so important for us to follow. Because God's committed to us And he will do whatever it takes to help us stop going a way we shouldn't be going. And why does he do that according to Hebrews? For our good, for our holiness, for our righteousness, for our training. For what's best for us. Now back to chapter 2 of Hosea. Again, in this picture, Hosea puts in something about God's character that the Holy Spirit helps him put in here. That no matter what we do against God, no matter what we do against his word, his character never changes. Do you understand that? I'm told the beginning. How do you think when somebody does something against you or disappoints you or does something they're not supposed to do, you told them not to do? We struggle with our thoughts about them, don't we? Well, I'm not helping them again, right? Look at verse 8 of chapter 2. Even in her sin, what's God say? She didn't know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished on her silver and gold, which they used for Baal. You mean even in the midst of their sin, God was still supplying everything they had? See, we turn to other things that we shouldn't turn to and think, I'm getting what I want from them. And not understanding, everything that I need, everything that I really have to have is coming from God. Verse 14, therefore behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak tenderly to her. There I will give her, my, give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor a door of hope. And there she shall answer as in the days of her youth, as in the time when she came out of the land of Egypt. In the past and the present, God kept supplying everything Israel needed. In the present and the future, even when he's doing discipline, he's doing it as tenderly as possible. He's giving hope. Verse 16, in the future, what would he do? In that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband. Verse 20, I will betroth you to me in faithfulness, and you shall know the Lord. And in that day I will answer, declares the Lord, I'll answer the heavens, they shall answer the earth. And the earth shall answer the grain, the wine, the oil, and they shall answer Jezreel. In his case, it means God will sow, and I'll sow her for myself in the land. And I'll have mercy on no mercy, and I'll say to not my people, you are my people, and he shall say, you are my God. Does our sin change God's character toward us? The answer is never. God never stops being God. 
in the best way. You got that? And because of his character, we see chapter 3, the picture of God's actions because of sin. Not God's actions towards sin, his actions because of sin. You got that? And it starts with another command to Hosea. The Lord said to me, go again. Love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Go again and love your wife. Love a woman. Evidently, Gomer has left the home of Hosea. She's been a prostitute. She also lives with another man, so she's an adulteress. And we'll see here in a couple of verses, she's also now been a slave. She's done something that's got her put into slavery. And Hosea's told, go ahead and love your wife again. Again, if you're Hosea, how are you reacting to that? So what's he do? Verse 2. So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. And I said to her, you must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. What's his response? He has to go and buy her out of the slave market. The woman who totally went against her vows, went against him, went against the kids, publicly disgraced him. And he buys her for 15 shekels. And you say, why is that important? Because the regular price for a slave was 30 shekels. If he only has to pay 15, what's that say about her? She's damaged goods. Nobody else would even buy her out of the market but Hosea. Hey, by the way, are we damaged goods? Romans 3, 23 and 24, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We're also cursed. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law but becoming a curse for us for it's written, cursed is everyone who hanged on a tree. God's the only one who would claim us as damaged goods. Do you understand that? And he redeems us anyway. And he has Hosea give this picture of claiming a woman that nobody else would ever want. And Hosea loves her anyway. Why this illustration? Chapter 3, verse 1. Go again and love a woman who is loved by another man and is an adulteress. Even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes of raisins. Does God love us even when we sin? Even when we do things that should totally disappoint him, totally have him turn from us? Go to chapter 11. Look at some reminders about God here. God never stopped having, keeping his covenant with Israel. He never stopped pursuing them. He never stopped showing them grace in the midst of their sin. Look at verses 3 and 4. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. 
I took them up by their arms, but they did not know that I healed them. I led them with cords of kindness, with the bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. Even in their sin, how was God treating them? Look at verse 8. How can I give you up, O Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. Do you understand how much God hates having to discipline us? That it gives him no pleasure at all having to allow things in our lives, thorns to keep us from going the wrong way? We tend to think God kind of likes this, right? That he's hoping we'll mess up so he can squash us like a bug. Ha ha, they did it wrong and I got them. No. Parents, be honest. How many of you like discipline your kids? By the way, if you do, there's a little problem. But we normally don't. Lamentation says this, For the Lord will not reject us forever, even if he causes suffering. He will show compassion according to his abundant faithful love, for he does not enjoy bringing affliction or suffering on mankind. But it won't stop him doing it, because it's for our good. Remember what Jesus told Israel that was rejecting him? O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets, stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. He knew what was coming had to come for Israel, but he didn't like doing it. Look at chapter 14, verses 4 to 8. I will heal their apostasy. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. I will be like the dew to Israel. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. His shoots shall spread out. His beauty shall be like the olive. His fragrance like Lebanon. They shall return and dwell beneath my shadow. They will flourish like the grain. They shall blossom like the vine. Their fame shall be like the wine of Lebanon. What does God want for us? The best. Back to chapter 3. God's taking Israel out of the land by, with Assyria. But the reality of it, this discipline was not going to be permanent. Chapter 3, verse 4. For the children of Israel should dwell many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or pillar, without ephod or household gods. Afterward, the children of Israel shall return and seek the Lord their God and David their king, and they shall come in fear to the Lord and to his goodness in the latter days. Would God bring them back? You understand, even when God doesn't show mercy, he shows mercy? You say, that's weird. I told him that in Nehemiah. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through their, your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the peoples of the lands. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. What a great God we have, isn't he? So we've seen this morning that God, even when we sin, never loses commitment to us, keeps his character to us, keeps providing for us, takes care of us, 
And so sin is really not that big a deal, is it? Isn't it okay if I just keep sinning and God just keeps taking care of things? Unfortunately, we think that too much. I remind you what God called their sin here. He called it whoredom. Because he wanted them to do something about their sin. Look back to chapter 6. You'll see a word that's used a number of times here. Does he want them just to keep sinning, keep doing those things that displease God, doing those things that go against God and his word? Come, chapter 6, verse 1, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down and he will bind us up. After two days he will revise us. On the third day he will raise us up that we may live before him. Let us know. Let us press on to know the Lord. His going out is as sure as the dawn. He will come to us as the showers, as the spring rains that water the earth. What's he say first? Return to the Lord. Press on to know the Lord. We could use the word here, repent, couldn't we? Go to chapter 10, verse 12. What's he want us to do with the sin we know we shouldn't be doing? Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, Break up your fallow ground. It's time to make a change. You got that? For it's time to seek the Lord that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. Chapter 12, verse 6. So you, by the help of your God, return. Hold fast to love and justice and wait continually for your God. Chapter 14, 1 to 3, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God, for you have stumbled because of your iniquity. Take with you words and return to the Lord. Say to him, take away all iniquity, accept what is good, and we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. What's he saying? Just keep sinning because it's okay? No. It's time to stop. It's time to make a change. It's time to get rid of it. And get back to doing the thing God wants you to do. The verses we looked at in Romans 2, verses 3 to 5. Why is God being so patient with us? Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to, there's our word in it, repentance. Make a change. You can't keep doing the things you know God doesn't want you to do. The end of chapter 14 Hosea ends with praise. Verse 9, whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them. But transgressors will continue to stumble in them. Whatever God does is right. Whatever God has to do in our lives to turn us from sin we shouldn't be doing, whatever he does is right. This is the theme of Hosea, if you go back and study it yourself. It's God unfailing love to his faithless people. Because if we're faithless, he remains faithful. And yet you realize his goal with his help is for us to be faithful to him. Let's pray. Father, your examples from Scripture are clear what you did with Israel to remind us how dire sin is and the consequences of sin is. 
is not something we can easily ignore. And this morning, if your Holy Spirit has been speaking to us and we've been listening, you've brought to our minds something we're doing that's not pleasing you that we need to turn from. So help us to break up our fallow ground this morning, to repent, to turn, and do what pleases you. Amen.